Kyle, what are you doing? Why are you covered in bandages? This dang machine has so many uh, sharp edges on it that I keep cutting myself. So I, I'm, I think from now on, I'm just going to like throw these around me, walk around, bandages for hands. Yeah, it's really stiffened you up. You're kind of <laughs> looking uh, like you're having trouble walking there. Listen, I put my arms out in front of me just so that I don't run into walls. I'm not the greatest vision-wise, as you know. I'm amazed that you got it all the way around your entire torso with your arms sticking out the front that way. You look great, though. Oh, thank you. Yeah. By the way, we don't have any more toilet paper in this house. That is not a rare thing to hear these days. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle, Kyle and Dave versus, versus the machine. The machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine, a podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although we tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. Why don't you ever introduce me anymore? Dave, this week we get to watch The Mummy. Ooh, wait, which mummy? Oh, and it's 1999, the good one. <laughs> From 1999. Sweet. We're going to watch the Boris Karloff of The Mummy <laughs> for just random purposes. I was thinking of Tom Cruise as usual. I mean, who doesn't yeah. think about Tom Cruise all the time? Where did you get this? On a dig down in Thebes. <gasps> Jonathan, I think you found something. There is an ancient legend of a place known as the City of the Dead. We call it the doorway to hell. Where the earliest pharaohs were said to have hidden the wealth of Egypt. Are we going into battle? There's something out there something underneath that sand. They came to uncover its secrets. Mummies, my good son. This is where they made the mummies. They sought to unlock its treasure. And then there was light. Oh, boy. All right, uh, Dave, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on... Oh. oh hey, man. we have another knock at the guest door, that Dave. That floating door, Kyle. You gotta, you gotta bolt that thing down. All right, well, let me just, let me just open this up here. Oh my goodness, it's Sarah Rowe of Scream Scene. Hello. Hi, Sarah. Hi. I mean, you're coming at us from a, uh, a computer screen, of course, here through the door, but uh, uh, what brings you here today? This computer screen. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. Maybe just to start things off here, um, uh, do you have some time to maybe watch the 1999 film, The Mummy, starring Brendan Fraser? I always have time for The Mummy. Okay, great. Maybe you can explain just a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do. Sure. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you guys. Uh, this computer just picked me up and brought me through its wires and Ethernet cables here. So I wasn't really sure what was going on, but it's nice to see some friendly faces. Um, yeah, the Ethernet is just a series of tubes. We know that. Exactly. All the machine's fault, Kyle. Don't, don't shift the blame. It's all <laughs> your fault. <laughs> I'm a co-host of the horror movie podcast called Scream Scene. We are watching every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then ranking them. So that's a big project. We've just made it to 1951, but that means that we've covered all of the 40s Universal Mummy movies. From yeah. the original in 1932 to the like four sequels through the 40s. Yeah, I think that you are the best person maybe to uh, talk about this movie with. And I mean, I may or may not have used your podcast to kind of steal some concepts for this podcast, but who can tell really in in the grand scheme of things? Um, Nothing's original. Uh, also, Nothing's original. Yeah, it's I all know. just ideas floating through the ether. Uh, I, I, wa I want to know two things. Number one, what is your impression of those original mummy films that Universal made in the 40s? And then just basically... What is your feelings, your relationship with this movie? I'll start with my relationship with the 1999 Mummy, because that's the first one that I ever saw. Um, I was nine years old when it came out, <laughs> and I, I just loved it so much. Um, the story of uh, this 
priest falling in love and then like being punished for it. And then you have the adventure pulp coming through with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss, And it's just so good. I just love it so much. Mm-hmm. Back when Brendan Fraser, you know, it. could, could bring him like bring people out to see a movie. Come on, yeah. Kyle. Just give him Don't. a hard time. Don't give Brendan Fraser a hard time. He's had he's a so he's had enough yeah, he's of had a hard a, time. He's he so has. cute. Come on. Man. Yeah. So sweet looking. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually factually true. That's no, it's true. It's absolutely true. When we started the podcast, I'd already seen the 1932 The Mummy because um, mm-hmm. it's a classic, Boris Karloff, and you know you might if you watch those old Universal movies, you might go like, "How do we get from this?" to the 1999 mummy. And that was something that I found very intriguing as we went through the 40s mummy movies. So there's 1932, the mummy, 1940, the mummy's hand. And that's where the shift towards more of an adventure uh, aspect happens. And then the 1942, the mummy's tomb kind of comes back into horror a little bit more and has a bit more of a, um, a feeling of like a serial killer on the loose, like this rampaging monster in small town America, um, attacking teenagers, making out in cars. And then the other, I mean, what else is a mummy supposed to do? Really? Right. You know, you've woken him up. What's he going to do? Um, <laughs> and then there's the mummy's ghost and the mummy's curse, both from 1944. Those are awful but they have unique things yeah. to them, but they're awful. I like the concept that a mummy would live its life um, adhering to the tenets of like ancient Egyptian society and also 1950s morality. Absolutely. Um, and during this time uh, in the 40s movies, uh, the mummy is controlled through these tana leaves that the priest like boils down and uses that to basically get the mummy to do what he needs the mummy to do mm-hmm. so it's kind of like a weird thing but seeing those movies you kind of get an understanding of how the mummy franchise as the universal kind of saw it uh was already straddling a line between horror and adventure pulp mm-hmm. action stuff um and then that really comes clear in the 1999 the mummy gotcha um dave how about you what is your relationship with this i was older when i saw it (laughs) (laughs) uh but i remember i saw it in the theater uh because this is a a pretty big blockbuster kind of release like i I don't know how to date it because my memory's broken as long as with my brain but i think brendan fraser is already a big deal and it just looked cool like i i I don't again i don't remember the lead up or anything i just remember leaving uh and my impression throughout history uh having watched it a few times not not very recently in the last decade or anything but uh that it's fun and How about crazy. anything else? Big. Was it like, besides this movie, was there any other mummies that infuse your popular culture, even like from Scooby-Doo or something like that? Not really. I, I think Scooby-Doo is always an old man in a ghost costume or a, mm. or a werewolf costume. or Old man Wilkins, yeah. Yeah, it's always <laughs> an old man. There's something, there's something wrong with the writers of that franchise. They really had it in for us old people. Um, yeah, it was spend... made during the 60s when all the teenagers <laughs> are smart and the old people are wrong. Well, yeah, yeah. not much. That much hasn't changed that much. No, um, <laughs> and I think, uh, yeah. So I, I didn't have a lot of uh, mummy experience at that point, other than the kitschy sort of, you know, um, kind of like you, Kyle, wrapping yourself in toilet paper and right. you know, putting sticks under your armpits. I, I'm not even sure how you're recording this. You look kind of ridiculous. But I, uh, I made a hole for my mouth. It's great. That's, that's, what, <laughs> um, that's, what, uh, so. that's what he said. No, we won't yeah. go there. Um, yeah, but that was great. I definitely had not seen like a traditional mummy film until this movie came out. Um, I have mentioned this numerous times now about how the theater in my small town burnt down. So this movie I saw on VHS, I'm going to guess, I think on a football trip, if I'm not mistaken, (laughs) or maybe a band trip. I don't remember. It was on a bus that I saw it for the first time. You mean like a TV on a bus? Yes. Amazing. Yeah, that's what you want for this um, kind of scope. That's, yeah. like, actually, as the filmmakers intended. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they wanted the best perfect viewing Four conditions. Four by three, not widescreen. <laughs> yeah. well, exactly. It's Pan probably also. It's probably also. Yeah. It's uh, with the black. I definitely bars, saw so. the sequels in theaters, but this was definitely on on that because um, the I think the theater got built in two thousand two thousand one. I can't remember now exactly when the new theater got built. Anyways. Uh, 
So I'm, I'm, I'm going to admit this, and it, I think, has a lot to do with how I saw it the first time. But I remember really hating this movie, <laughs> like very no. deeply hating this movie. You can't tell me that. I know. <laughs> that explains and, our relationship, Kyle. It really but does. But you know what it was? And, and this is because 15-year-old Kyle was like super pretentious, edgelord Kyle, um, <laughs> was I think because I had seen, of course, The Matrix, and I knew what like special effects and stuff could be. When you see this, even in the same year, it's just like, well, what? Uh, why, why is this looking so bad and awful? <laughs> For whether that's it deserves it or not, that is what my mindset was. And I think that's carried through in my feelings for this movie. So we'll see. We'll see how I feel after I rewatch it and see if I have the same feeling. Such a judgmental. Pr- All right, let's move on. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do, <laughs> let's, let's go and watch the movie. People okay. at home can go and watch the movie too if they, if they can. Um, and then when we return after thanking some sponsors, we'll be talking about the mummy. Hi there. It's Kyle. Of course, this is the part of the show where I jump in and talk about a few of our sponsors here for this episode. A great time to be thankful that there's people out there that are still invigorated and wanting podcasts, the local podcasts, the small podcasts, to succeed in any way possible. I'm still covered in bandages, which makes everything a little bit more difficult, but I shall persevere. Right up top, Kylan Day vs. The Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Our first sponsor this week is Pod Power. With Pod Power, ATB is making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, we're giving a Pod Power shout-out to Bookwomen. Bookwomen is a podcast about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. Hosts Tanya Ball, Sheila LaRock, and Kayla Larson are three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland. Now, they have banded together to chat books, culture, and anything else that comes up. Bookwomen has recently been added to Indian and Cowboys Podcast Incubator Program for Emerging Voices that contribute positively to the Indigenous podcasting space. You can listen and find out more at bookwomenpodcast.ca. That's bookwomenpodcast.ca. This week, we're also sponsored by the Alberta Podcast Network. So let's take a listen to one of our other great shows. You know, I love books, and I would like to join a book club, but uh, it seems like such a big commitment. Why is that? Reading a whole book in a month, that takes a lot of time. Well, what if it was only one chapter, say, a week? Organizing to meet up with people is a lot of work. Well, what if it was only half an hour whenever it worked for you? That would be great. The Read Along. It's a mini book club for your ears. Join my wife, Anita. And my husband, Scott. On a weekly journey through a good book, one one chapter chapter at a time. time. Part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. And subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts can be found. All right. How do we feel about that? Good. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think it was swashbuckling fun. Let's uh, <laughs> let's get into some of this um, there are no background in information because we just finished watching the movie. I can't stress this enough to the people that we just finished watching the movie. It's like still in my eyes, Kyle. Mm-hmm. It's still it's still in there. So here's some background information. The Mummy was released May seventh of nineteen ninety nine. And there was no other films released that day, which in seems so wild to me. Uh, maybe not in the year 2020, but definitely in 2019 to have a May release, have nothing go up against it is weird to mm-hmm. me. But currently it is rated 7.0 on IMDb. It has a 48 on Metacritic Ooh. and on Rotten Tomatoes. 60% of the critics uh, think it was a fresh movie and 75% of uh, users think it's a fresh movie. It is available on DVD or Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes. You can also rent it via YouTube or Google Play Movies. And in Canada, it is available to stream on Amazon Prime. Now, I'm not saying that we just watch it on Amazon Prime because the, the machine actually has it so that we all... Uh, uh, watched it uh, from its like weird console that kind of shoots out of its body <laughs> just to paint a picture for people but if you were to watch it on amazon prime it's interesting that there is no subtitles for the non-english 
portions <laughs> of this movie. And it's apparently a problem with Amazon specifically. And sometimes with, um, with Netflix, where they confuse subtitles and closed captions. So they don't actually provide the, uh, the closed captioning for the non-English bits. Do you remember back in the day, you'd ha- you could select like closed captioning and then for the hard of hearing and some of them would actually like describe the physical movements or like weird background sounds and some of them wouldn't uh it was fun having options you know yeah. you could actually choose a track but not anymore <laughs> the, the machine has that's, us but, well i mean that's also where you get those really funny memes right where it's like crying seductively or something like that yeah. that's what the closed captioning is supposed like, to be Kyle, can you give us an example of crying seductively <laughs> I cannot. So the uh, <laughs> the budget for this film back in 1999 was 80 million dollars. It opened to 43. Domestically, it would go on to make another 155, and internationally, 260. So for a grand total of 415 million dollars, which is 644 million dollars adjusted for inflation. It's not bad. So this was a very much a box office hit. Yes. Globally. Like that first weekend though. Globally. Yeah. Yeah. Rough numbers. I mean, so I'm of the age, like that was huge back in 1999. $43 million in an opening was huge. I remember it being, was it the first Harry Potter that was like the first one that really broke records when it was like $93 million in the first weekend and people lost their minds. It wasn't the shitty Phantom Menace? No. Well, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. God awfully. I have a feeling, Kyle, that that piece of shit's in 1999 too. I, who can tell? Do we have the internet? Not me. Nope. So, <laughs> so its plot description from IMDb is, at an archaeological dig in the ancient city of Hamanupatra, an Ooh, American nice. serving in the French Foreign Legion accidentally awakens a mummy who begins to wreak havoc as he searches for the reincarnation of his long-lost love. Very succinct. That is very much a encapsulation of this movie. I know we Except do this live, but how often uh, would you have had to practice saying Hamana Nutra correctly to get that right? Maybe 20 re- minutes before we started uh, recording. Who knows? Because <laughs> <laughs> in the movie, they say Hamanatra. Oh, yeah. That's... Is that how they say? Oh, man. Hamanatra. They have a P in there, though. Are you saying that's a silent P? Oh, my goodness. It's, it's interesting. We made that mistake, Kyle, since we just watched it. We just watched this yeah. movie. <laughs> I mean, I will say that, like, it's not like the movie is 100% on some no. of its pronunciations. <laughs> no. And it's also the um, the main mummy's name. He was just the architect of the pyramids or something like that. Yeah. Like, that's where they got that name from. It's He was not a king or anything like that at all. Or a priest you know or whatever, that? yeah. Yeah. It's like you Googled it. So this movie stars Brendan Fraser as Rick O'Connell, Rachel Weiss as Evelyn Carnahan, John Hanna as Jonathan Carnahan. Lazy on the naming there, I think. Kevin J. O'Connor as Benny Gabor. So let's talk about this, uh, some of their backstories here and what they were up to. Kevin J. O'Connor was born November 15th of 1963. He was in his first film in 1986 called One More Saturday Night and followed that up soon after by being in Peggy Sue Got Married. Uh, he certainly maintained being a working actor by being in such hits as... Steel Magnolias, also being in Canadian Bacon, Amistad, and Gods and Monsters. After The Mummy, he would be in the television show called The Others, but that only lasted 13 episodes. He would come back to film by being Igor in Van Helsing, also the same director as this movie. And then he was in the Paul Thomas Anderson films, There Will Be Blood and The Master. The next film you might be able to see him in is Unicorn, which currently has no plot description. It doesn't need one. It doesn't need one. That, I mean, doesn't need one. Yeah, I'm in there. It's, I'm in. He's that guy, like, I, I know he's popped up in a bunch of movies. He's one of the people with the, a face that's like, oh, yeah, that guy who I've seen in a bunch of stuff. Um, so it's nice that he continues to get work. Yeah, I think he's a frequent collaborator with this director. John Hanna. John Hanna was born April 23rd, 1962. He started, he started acting in UK television shows that have such names as Brond, Bookie, Taggart, Boone, and the bill or the names of my last few boyfriends <laughs> there's an ao yeah his first film role was as a bit part in four weddings and a funeral in 1994 right before the mummy he was in the film sliding doors the um oh my gosh the leader of goop what's her name gwyneth paltrow gwyneth paltrow yeah. gwyneth paltrow's film about different futures depending on the choices you make it's funny how that's uh, relevant now hey gwyneth yeah. 
Yeah. Choices right. you've made. <laughs> uh, you know what you've done. Um, in 1999, <laughs> in 1999, he would also appear in The Hurricane at the boxing movie starring Denzel Washington. Uh, while he would also appear in the Mummy sequels, he would go back to TV for the majority of the 2000s in bit parts. For some people, that might be Spartacus, Blood and Sand might be something that you're familiar with. Or if you have a, you know, a, a different flavor of television show, you enjoy Damages because he was in a bunch of episodes of Damages. Is that Ted Danson? No, it's Glenn Close. Glenn isn't Close. It? Uh, the next film you might be able to see him in is Enemy Lines. Its plot description is In the frozen, war torn landscape of occupied Poland during World War II, a crack team of Allied commandos are sent on a deadly mission behind enemy lines to extract a rocket scientist from the hands of the Nazis. I personally think that they should call it 1972, The Search for Nazi Gold, but that's, that's just me spitballing. <laughs> With like the just... year in that title too? <laughs> exactly. 1972. <laughs> 1917 to The Search for Nazi Gold. <laughs> Dave, uh, the machine wants you to continue talking about our cast here, so I'm, I'm going to push this button. It's going to send you that printed receipt there that you have uh, uh, received, and you can take us uh, the rest of the way. No machine... Isn't it enough that I have to come out here every week? Now I have responsibilities. <laughs> Total bullshit. This says Rachel Weiss. Do we say Weiss or Weiss? Who knows? Weiss, I think. Uh, born March 7th, 1970, she would also start her career playing bit parts on television shows. Her first film role was in 1994's Death Machine. That sounds awesome. Yeah. She would follow that up with Stealing Beauty, a late Bertolucci film that also featured Liv Tyler. The Mummy would certainly catapult her into star. This sounds like it was, I don't know, Kev, it has a bit of your vernacular to it. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, it's pretty, well, it is your machine. She would go on to be in Beautiful Creatures, Enemy at the Gates, and About a Boy. I wonder if Enemy at the Gates holds up. I don't know. I think it does. Have you seen it recently? Um, yeah. I guess not recently. It was at Just least over five years ago. <laughs> Remember Last when Joseph Fiennes enough, was yeah. going to be a big deal? I, yeah. I thought he, I thought he had it. There's so who knew, who knew that it was going to be Rafe out of the two of them that was well, going to have a <laughs> longer career? And Jude Law is in that too. It's great. That's yep. right. Uh, beautiful. I, I just saw in that I love about a boy too. I love about a boy. Hugh Hugh, uh, Hugh Grant. Yep. Anyways, uh, she would then appear in The Fountain and win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in The Constant Gardener. Hey, speaking of Rafe Fiennes. Speedboat Refines. In, That's a movie that I immediately forgot after I watched it, by the way. Oh, damn. <laughs> I saw that in theaters when it came out. Uh, wow. That's, you're cruel. Yeah. Cruel. Uh, in recent years, she's tried her hand at comedy in The Lobster and The Favorite, but she would also show off her dramatic skills in My, co in my Cousin Rachel and The Mercy. The Is next she thing the you'll cousin? Be oh. No. Hey, I don't hey, remember, oh. actually. <laughs> Yeah. If she's not, then they should change the title. False advertising. Yeah. It'd be disappointing. I'd have walked out of the theater. The next thing you'll be able to see her in is her entry in superhero films. She has a role in Black Widow. It says bracket whenever that film actually comes out. I don't know what's going on with Marvel, but I think she's the mom, right? I saw a trailer. That's kind of Well, cool. she's 50 years old. So, of course, in Hollywood, that immediately means you have to be a mother. Yes. That means she probably had ScarJo when she was nine. Not that her personal life is super important, but she is currently married to James Bond himself, Daniel Craig. And truth be told, I'm more afraid of her kicking my ass than... Do, did I have to read that? <laughs> yes, <right>. you do. <laughs> more ki kicking my ass than... Do you, I don't know if you guys follow gossip, but my wife, Helen, uh, mandatory shout out to my beautiful wife, has said there's some drama there. Is that not a good relationship? Was there some... I have no idea. Oh, she was saying something about how... Uh, there was some drama around that relationship. So if you guys don't know, I'm sorry I brought it up. <laughs> but they just had a kid. I think mm -hmm. it was about something about how they got together. And then I oh. stopped listening because I, <laughs> I just, I don't know. I got a, not that I don't care, but yeah, celebrity gossip. But, but I don't care. <laughs> yeah, you know. And he's Bond. Like what? It's like the Brad Pitt thing, you know? When you walk into a room with somebody, you're only human, right? Mm -hmm. When he walks out of the ocean... Casino Royale. Anyways, uh, Brendan Fraser, ah, my man, B-Dog, B that's awesome. <laughs> Born that's, that's, what, that's what his friends call him, B-Dog. B-Dog. Uh, that's that's going to be permanently on record. I'm embarrassed I said that. 
Born December 3rd, 1968, his first role was a TV movie called Child of Darkness. Child, oh, that's, it's more Child of Darkness, Child of Light. But he would soon follow that up with dumb 90s comedies like Encino Man, Son in Law, Airheads, and George of the Jungle. Dumb's a little heavy, uh, Machine Kyle. <laughs> wow. I have hey. not called George of the Jungle dumb. No, it's great. It's well, like I mean, a romantic comedy. I haven't seen it in 20 years, but. I, I really like George. Hey, I, the the machine is who editorializes on this. I don't I I don't know. Like, well, listen, him. machine, it. you need to get your stuff together. You need to oh, get it together. I have the power to cancel your podcast. Yeah, do, let's, do, do, yeah. don't make it don't make it too mad. I mean, I don't know what it's capable of, <laughs> other than apocalypse. But other than that, <laughs> <laughs> listen, we're already in the apocalypse. It's fine. Yeah. That's that's a that's a fact. He would show off his dramatic acting skills in well-reviewed roles in God and Monster Gods and Monsters. That's come up already, hasn't it? That movie. He was the star in all three Mummy movies. I'd forgotten there were three, by the way, and primarily still did dumb comedies. Again, Jesus, uh, still did dumb comedies like Bedazzled. Actually, uh, is that the one with uh, what's her name, Elizabeth Hurley, where she's the devil, or is that? Yeah, I think so. Oh. Uh, Bedazzled, Monkey Bone, and Dudley Do Right. However, he was also an Academy Award-winning Best Picture Crash. No comment on that. Yeah, I can't believe that movie won a, an Academy Award, but that's okay. Now, his personal life would catch up with him. After divorcing his wife, he petitioned the courts in 2013 that he simply could not upkeep the payment of $900,000 per year in alimony. Because he performed his own stunts, he needed to go in for knee surgery, spinal surgery, and vocal cord surgery. I'm trying to think of what stunt required him to lose his singing voice? George of the Jungle? Actually, yeah. you know what? Yes. It was probably not a soundtrack. Uh, sound, by, uh, uh, sound effect. Added onto that, he came forward in 2018 that he had been sexually assaulted by the president of the Hollywood Foreign Press. Fraser has said that him coming forward in addition to all the other things is in part why his career has declined so much from its peak. Over the last few years, he has been in a bunch of essentially direct-to-video films and cheesy TV. This The robots really got it in for Brandon Fraser. <laughs> this, is, this is hardcore. Uh, the next thing you might be able to see him in is The Secret of Karma. Plot description reads, Real story about man who clinically died two times and become, oh, grammar, and become homeless while trying to film his experience. Mm. Uh, I don't know, yeah. All right, let's move on. Uh, directed by Stephen Summers. Written by Stephen Summers. Based on the screen story by Stephen Summers, Lloyd Fonville, Fonville, and Kevin Yar. Stephen Summers was born March 20th, 1962. His first film that he wrote and directed was called Catch Me If You Can. Not the one you're thinking of. Oh, the one in 1989 that was about a hotshot car racer who persuades the class president of a small Minnesota high school to gamble on illegal car races to raise money for their school-facing closure. We all remember this movie, oh, right? Oh, yeah. No. Catch me if you can. <laughs> oh, my God. He would go on to write all three Mummy films. I like that the word films appears here. I would just call them movies if we're going to call... Everything else is dumb that Brendan Fraser, Fraser did. No, no, no. These are films. The other stuff he did was movies. <laughs> However, this is he'd only true direct, cinema. <laughs> however, he'd only direct the first two. But he was also responsible for the cult film Deep Rising. He would also write and direct Van Helsing, as well as G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. Wow. Up next is a film called When Worlds Collide, which he is writing and directing as well. Its plot description is... A rogue planet is discovered on a collision course for Earth and mass, his and mass hysteria of biblical proportions will break out in the streets once knowledge of the secret and impending doom is leaked to the public. He seems to like biblical storylines, I would say. And the end of days. Pretty yeah. Okay. That's right. how you get the stakes up high. Exactly. Now, that's some table setting to go on like what else they were responsible for, where they're at in their careers uh, right now. I want to throw it to you, Sarah. Now that we've rewatched this after many years, what is your general feelings about this movie? I, I have to say, maybe it's just because it's colored by nostalgia, but I just love this movie still. Now that I'm like almost 30, 
uh, I definitely see things in this movie where it's like, oh, that's that's not super great. And you see examples of like racism, anti-blackness, but like, you know, it's it is still a fun pulp movie. I think it does a really good job of bringing together like a not so much horror, but like a scary, thrilling element and almost like an Errol Flynn adventure part to it. This does feel very like Adventures of Robin Hoodie, if you've ever seen that movie with Errol Flynn. Absolutely. Yeah. Except I think Brendan Fraser is a better Errol Flynn. Just going to put go. that out there. Yeah. Um, so it still holds up for me. Absolutely. Now, Dave, in a sense, you're also almost 30. Oh, what did off. you think? <laughs> <laughs> You know, in spirit, I can't even say that anymore. God damn it. Um, what is your feeling about this movie? Well, I, I really enjoyed watching it. I, you know what a sign of a great uh, sort of action-adventure movie is? Uh, is that I got lost in it and I stopped thinking about it critically. Mm-hmm. I was surprised when it opened, you know, in the opening scene in Egypt at, uh, and then the subsequent opening sort of modern scene in the desert with the battle of how wide the scope is. It mm. felt, I mean, it's all of its derivative. I, you, you guys are going classic films. I, I was, the whole time I was thinking this is a, an homage or a ripoff of an Indiana Jones adventure, but there's just something, yeah. you know, you get that super wide framing and he actually, like the budget makes sense. The, the number of extras that are murdered in this fucking thing are like, it's, it's unbelievable. And then I think that is a big thing that, that lends itself a bit of credibility as much as I still don't think that the uh, social effects hold up all that well. The extras and the people that are in the frame, those are real people. Um, yeah, right? practical like, And it effects. feels lived in. It feels like this is actually happening. Uh, yeah. You know, honestly, I was willing to uh, have a, give it a, a hall pass, so to speak, on special effects until the uh, Scarab Beatles, but mm-hmm. we can get into that uh, more specifically later <laughs> if you want. Um, and then, you know, I, I had forgotten about the opening montage in Egypt and that they would kind of just throw the actual story and not make it a mystery and just let you know why we're all fucking doomed. And uh, right. uh, and that played out really well for me. I actually was surprised. Even like the panning of the pyramids. I was just like, oh yeah, like this actually looks uh, fine. Like I get it. <laughs> and then, uh, and I loved, yeah, the opening scene, a little Lawrence Arabia-esque, like there's this horses and fucking guns and then you get the ham. Like I love Brandon Fraser. Like yeah. he's just such a cartoon character. Well, I know that, uh, like, speaking about him more broadly, and I, we brought up uh, Tom Cruise already, who was in a not great mummy film. What I appreciate about Tom Cruise is that he does do all his own stunts. And Brendan Fraser, who does most of his own stunts as well, I think sometimes people believe I put too much stock into this. There is just something about it when I know it's the real person doing that, that just gives it an extra sense of danger to me that I really appreciate. It's like, oh, no, that's him actually doing that. Yeah. I don't know. That's cool. I think that was the magic of Ongbak for me. I mean, you could tell that all the stunt people are wearing motorcycle helmets underneath their wigs, but it's because uh, Tony Jaws actually fucking elbowing these stuntmen in the face, right? And, you know, like talking about practical effects and how it holds up better than CGI, when you do that cutaway and then all of a sudden it's uh, you know a man or a woman that's clearly 30 pounds heavier with muscles sticking on the wrong place and a different build doing like three backflips, you know, you lose a little bit of the magic. And it's also fun, I think The Matrix is like this where they, I mean, I'm presuming because Brendan Fraser is doing it, they'll choreograph the fight scenes and the action to the actor as opposed to having right. an elaborate thing. Because Keanu Reeves, as much as he's apparently now a gun ninja uh, he's not a martial artist. I mean, it's yeah. In the Matrix, I love the Matrix is one of the great, great films of our generation. But you know, like he's not a martial artist. Yeah, um, and I no, think no. you see that kind of choreography to the actor in the climax of the Mummy, where when like the guard mummies come out, and these are like next level badass mummies, um, and they're mixing mixing in some like physical comedy in with how Brendan Fraser is fighting these guys. Yeah, there's something that I've been thinking about here this last week that ties us all together because uh, you just talked about Tony Ja. Uh, I rewatched uh, Police Story with Jackie Chan here wow. just the other day. I Jackie love Chan's it. Genius. I, yeah, man. It's so good. <laughs> it's like, oh, he actually just dropped four stories. Yeah, <laughs> like, you watch him. Yeah. He just did that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but as I was watching that movie, it would seem so apparent that like, oh, he really is the reincarnation of Buster Keaton. Like, Absolutely. He Buster loved was not Buster like, Keaton. Yeah. Right. Like, and Buster Keaton is not uh, like a fight choreographer, but he just was able to move his body and do all these intricate, uh, you know, um, choreographs to in his films that was inspired Jackie Chan. And I think in a way inspires this movie, like the, the one moment I love, which um, apparently was a late addition. Uh, was when Rachel Vice like pulls him out of the way of those two bullets that come through the wall. Yes. It's like pull, boom, pull, boom. It's like, oh, that's really clever. That's a really cool well, <laughs> just way to visually show what's going on and the stakes that are in this movie. His uh, his facial expression, that whole sequence is great too because mm-hmm. it's, he's just, I don't know what it was, that look in that last bullet pass, he's just like, I don't know, like he's both oblivious <laughs> and ready to take action. It was great. I, I yeah. that part was fun. I think like if you watch the mummy and you pay close attention attention to Frasier's face, you see a level of like comedic timing come through the way he like quickly reacts to people and circumstances. Um, even, you know, there'll be a, there's a moment where like he lights some dynamite, throws it down and it blows up in a wall and destroys some mummies. Like the look on his face right before you cut is just like, shit, <laughs> what <laughs> yeah. are we doing? <laughs> Uh, it's great. He, he's a really great actor. Um, and if people do want to read more a little bit about him, the there's a really good article about him in GQ, which is where he talked about his sexual assault. Um, and you get to hear from his own words, like his experience making movies in the 90s and everything. It's really powerful. I, I think he's really underrated. And I'm surprised that this damn machine didn't mention Blast from the Past one of his great, like, dramatic, comedic roles. Yeah, Kyle. I mean, the machine. Hey, I'm not the one on trial here. Like, that's a pretty big omission there. <laughs> Wait a second. We're, we're two separate people. Yes, I mean, of course. Are you saying the machine is a people? <laughs> it, he it built is, it. it. He built it. It is a sentient, it is a sentient being. That's <laughs> all I know. Okay. Messing uh, with the fates. I, I'm going to go further because as someone who is fairly dismissive of, of Brendan Fraser for many decades... I think I'm going to go so far as to say I think it's time for a Fraser Assance in that I really would love to see him being cast in more high profile roles because I mm-hmm. think he could still go. And he I think it, there's something different about him as an actor that you don't really see much of nowadays. Yeah, I, I, superficially with the life that he's led and we'll see if I'm wrong about this, but I feel like on a screen level, he has not aged that well like whenever i've seen him pop there was a movie where before the gq sort of revelation where he was uh kind of walked i don't know it was an adam sandler it's he's like they run into him in a coffee shop and he's a character of himself self-aware that he's not on the inside anymore and from that point i realized like yeah he i mean he's probably my age right like he's in his 40s or maybe in the 50s like um We'll see. I mean, he he gets a little grizzled and comes back in that sort of, uh, I can't even think of an actor. He'd be great. But uh, he's also got a, he's a bit of a cartoon character. <laughs> so 52, yeah. by the way. He's 52. 52. Yeah. So can't fix the past. As oh, well, he maybe we could go blasting into the past at some point and bring him up. Uh, as far as it being derivative too, the other thing that I liked from the tone changes, as soon as it became a horror-esque movie, it was... For me, a little bit Sam Raimi-esque, like mm. the way the zombie mummy started popping up from the ground, the reaching hands, and he started using sort of like these shaky cam moments to, you know, like give you the more paranoia. And I thought it actually worked, cut really well together because uh, you get that sense of panic. It's like starts very wide and, and broad and historical. And then, it, yeah, it, it kind of turns into this thing where you're like, oh shit, like this guy's getting eaten alive by these terribly animated scarab beetles. Um, yeah, you know it's fascinating. It was uh, it was really fun, and uh, I I have to say that as I've gotten older, I've recognized in myself that uh, there's a type of movie that I usually really enjoy, which is uh, two different genres kind of butting heads with each other. Yes. Whether that's like the horror comedy, or it's like it starts in one way and kind of moves into something else. Um, when done well, at least I think that can really pay off, and I think this one does overall. It's like this adventure story, really. Until it gets into that horror element kind of in the last act of the movie. And it turn, definitely is. Like you have some things that are meant to be like shocking, horrifying, and, and scary. Absolutely. Like when they 
are it's it starts off as this adventure movie when they are heading out to Hamanapcha and once they get there and start digging, that's when they ramp up the horror, the tension, the diggers getting melted, the mummy coming out of the case and like being gooey and whatever. Like all of that is built to establish that sense of horror. But that's not the movie's focus. Um, but I, I feel like it's almost like the director paying homage to the 1932 movie, which is horror. It's a little mm-hmm. lackluster, but it is still yeah. horror. I mean, not that we spoke before you came out the door, Sarah, but I thought uh, it was interesting too how you you're, you might have focused on that this is a broken love story uh, mm-hmm. of murders, but uh, I think underpinning the horror and magical element with a story that seems relatable, even if, you know, in its audacity of murdering a man so that they could smush. It's, uh, it's a pretty fascinating thing. Like, uh, you're not rooting for the monster, but you kind of have this moment where you're like, you know, yeah, like, I get it. Like, he's, he's going to murder <laughs> people for his woman, right? Uh, yeah. Instead of just being this thing that comes out of a crypt and just wants to eat brains. Like, it, it's one level above uh, pure zombie-esque. Yeah, you understand their motivations. I mean, definitely he is doing uh, evil things in the present day, but... Who isn't, uh, Kyle? You built a machine. Who hasn't for love, (laughs) is what we're trying to say. Who hasn't for love? Now, we don't have to spend a lot of time uh, in in this area, because I don't tend to love to stay in the negative place, but we've been speaking a lot about some of the stuff that really worked for us. Is there stuff that does not hold up for you or does not really work for you uh, today? I remember even as a kid being like, not really fully understanding the whole like plagues of Egypt thing. So the mm-hmm. idea is that when Imhotep rises, he's, he will bring with him the 10 plagues of Egypt. And my only context when this movie came out for the plagues of Egypt was the Prince of Egypt movie, um, <laughs> which right, is like right. the biblical story of Moses and everything. Um, and so I was like, why would he bring the plagues of, isn't that like a Christian thing? And we're, we're doing Egyptian things. And then even the movies demonstrations of these plagues is like very like, A, they're out of order and B, they miss some and C, there's no reason for it except to raise the stakes of this being like a catastrophic world changing problem. And I don't think they needed to go that high with stakes. Right. Um, because I've also heard criticism of this movie being like, you know, if the idea is that if this guy ever rises again, he will destroy the world, why would you do this curse at all? Well, that's kind of my biggest beef with the movie as as an adult and now watching this, which is I don't actually really fully understand even the f- whole setup. Like, we're going to do this curse, uh, lock him away. Okay, cool. I get that. But then it's like, we're going to entrust this group of people to overlook it who don't really protect them ever. It's like, oh, <laughs> shoot, you, you released him. Well, you should leave now, I guess. It's like, well, isn't that what your job is for them to not even get this far? Anyways, it seemed weird to uh, me. To I guess that. for me, I, I felt like they, the, I don't remember what they're called, but uh, the protectors. Yes. And I don't think that the protectors were there under the pharaohs or the culture's orders. It, to me, it felt like they had inherited this thing because they were understood that there were supernatural powers there, but they had this uh, observer's role more than being involved. Like they didn't wall or barricade the city. They aren't the ones mm. that have hidden it in sand or with this beautiful sun optic effect where you can only see a giant city in the middle of the desert to have, if you're yeah. standing in this one position at a specific time until the end of the movie where everybody knows where exactly where it is, uh, especially if you're a broken, drunken uh, British pilot. Yes. But it's not meant to be classically defendable. Uh, Was there anything uh, that didn't work for you? Yeah, I, I, everything you're saying, I agree with. I mean, this is... But I think for me, I hide under the fact that I don't think the intent is for it to be anything other than, you know, what I can't remember the euphemism, like popcorn, whatever. Uh, you just go and watch it Presumably, you become uh, titillate. Is that a word we can use? Titillated? Can yeah. we titillate? We, we were, we, well, yeah. We're rated in such a way that we can only use that word four times per episode. I was going to say, that might that. be the one word we have to censure. Censure? Yeah. Censor? Or censor. Uh, yeah. yeah, it depends. I can't remember if we're 
what language you're speaking. Yeah, uh, you know, it's yeah. I mean, there's not a lot other than the original setup. It's not a lot of character development. Like each of the individual, you know, characters are two dimensional. We were texting back and forth, Dave, and you uh, basically made this analogy that I never thought of before about how weird, in a way, it is that Rachel Vice is in this movie, in in the same way that like um, Cameron Diaz is in The Mask, and I forget the other example. Where it's like. They appear in this movie and then would go on to be like real, real stars. I she's, real I mean, she's stars, great. Yeah. She takes this. Oh yeah, she is ridiculous yeah. character. And she, I mean, in the machines preamble, this kind of idea that comedy is a throwaway for her is also like the Brendan Fraser by a little bit uh, overstated because uh, she has. I mean, this is a movie where she. I thought she like Cameron Diaz. Like I thought Cameron Diaz when she came up was just going to be you know like. Uh, the blonde chick, right? And then she disappears because the mask was the mask. I don't think that movie holds up. And I refuse to watch it because I'm going to cherish my memory of that movie. <laughs> and uh, do yourself a favor and actually those first few Jim Carrey f- films, just rely on the memory because they don't. <laughs> when yeah. you go back and watch them, <laughs> it's like, Liar Liar wasn't bad. That was on Netflix yeah. for a while. And I thought she was great. It's But it's it's stupid too. And it's annoying I don't know if this is a statement about. I mean, there's going to be a, a clearly a lot of male chauvinism, chauvinism, white privilege, all that kind of stuff that's going to be reflected because that's just the culture of uh, Hollywood movies of that era. But that she is the beautiful Patsy, and she's you know the white person in a horror movie that has to keep opening the next fucking door, you know, and like because otherwise the you know the plot will never progress. That's a movie right. where Brendan Fraser. Could you stop opening doors? Yeah, like. <laughs> Brendan Fraser's character uh, starts off the movie seeing, you know, the, the horror and being like, fuck it, I'd rather rot in a jail. I'm not going back there. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is, I think, is a cool... Is, he's not this Indiana Jones thing where he's like, he's got to go back and complete the by, mission. By the way, I have to say, that scene where he's hanged, I don't know how they did it, but boy, does that look crazy realistic of him <laughs> being probably hanged. Probably like, That's the vocal cords, maybe. That yeah. Been, well, uh, I think uh, I remember reading that he actually nearly lost consciousness. Um, oh wow! Oh, they actually hung him. Yeah. Well, like there was like safety things involved and and yeah. stuff. So not if you're Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but Tom Cruise has a death wish. Okay, Brendan Fraser <laughs> yeah, clearly doesn't. Really. He's, he he's also protected by the Scientology. Yeah. Yeah, that, um, yeah that's true. So hey, they Zeno, actually Zeno hung protects him. all. Zeno protects all. Um, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. I I want to do this comparison that we often do here. Do you think that there's if if this movie were to be remade in 2020, which I guess technically it was, but let's say like the same script was remade, what do you think would be different? What would they have to retool to to release it, or would they have to change anything? I had this one thought that the Rachel Weisz character's brother would probably be played by James Corden, which is so <laughs> disappointing. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Is that just because you're anti-James Corden or- You know, when he first came out, you know, a lot of the gags are great, but uh, he's, I find him very exhausting now. Yeah, now it's getting so, see what you started, Kyle? It's getting so personal. Um, I don't know. I will say though, (laughs) Sarcophagus Karaoke, great show. Uh, (laughs) Oh my goodness. There's there's something that I was noticing and I don't know, I think we're getting maybe less stringent on this. I just, what uh, what I really um, observed was that because this is 1999, you know, a couple of years before 2001, I don't know if they would have had a um, a Muslim being so, I don't know, funny, for lack of a better word, or being the butt of the joke, that they would probably be more so like the villains of the piece uh, if it was at least any of the decade or 15 years after 2001. Like I said, I think that's slowly kind of going away, but... Mm-hmm. It, it was very different when you go through like a decade and a half of like, oh, like they are the villains of everything, uh, of every movie that we're doing. I think that's a good point. Um, I mean, like Odette Fair, who plays um, the lead Magi, his name is Ardith mm-hmm. Bay, but he, it's never said in the movie. Um, I don't think, so he's actually Israeli, but I don't think he would have been able to be in this movie in the same way because of post-2001 stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and I think you can see that reflected in his career. But even um, to your point about the comedy around the warden, like, yes, it's politically incorrect, I'll say, um, of like this character being smelly, dirty and everything. And you have to kind of ask yourself, is this racist or is this bad comedy? Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think that character is taking the place of 
if you look at old adventure movies, and I mean from like the Lost World uh, in like mm. the 20s, there's the minstrel character who is played by either a black man or a white man in blackface. And I think the warden is kind of taking that role in there. They aren't hammering it in. Like he he's in that role as part of that trope, but they're not like hammering it home. Um, it's like they know that they need to have a character in that kind of role to make this homage to pulp adventure really work. But um, he's not the only one who's comedic um, or the butt of the joke. Um, you have Jonathan, you have Rick as well. Even there are moments with Evie being the comedy element. So I think if it was made today, I, I would agree with you that there would probably be a bit more of like a conspiracy element to it. And honestly, I think that if you look at the 1999 Mummy, not counting the sequels, you see a logical through line to the Tom Cruise Mummy of like high stakes, end of the world, action, blah, only it's more so. And to be fair, I haven't seen the t- 2020, what is it? Was it like 2019? Nobody saw it. Nobody, Nobody saw it. it. So I haven't seen... Uh, yeah, 2018, I think, is when it came out, okay. if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I haven't seen the 2018 The Mummy, but I... It makes... Like, I understand the through line there. I disagree with that through line. I don't think that's what The Mummy should be. Um, I think the 1999 Mummy, with all its problems, it does capture that kind of like Errol Flynn, Indiana Jones, and 1940s Universal movies, even like all of their like 40s movies. I feel like the writer and director watched those movies and brought in elements that made this made the 1999 movie a good puzzle box of all of those disparate pieces. This is always my hope. Um, And I realize this is like a losing battle in many ways, which is, I think oftentimes we get enamored with things and it's like the idea of them Mm -hmm. is what carries us forward. When it's like, if you go and watch them again or view them again, it's like, Oh, this isn't exactly uh, what I thought this was, but the feeling that I have of this is so cool. I would love it if universal could still have like, the feeling of those, you know, early universal horror pictures set in modern day uh, with uh, modern budgets and like special effects and that sort of thing, but still have like that sense of fun and stuff. Because I mean, I just watched The Invisible Man, the new Invisible Man that came out here in 2020. And I liked it, but it was like, boy, is that not a, like a fun movie? Like it is a very <laughs> like, it is terrifying. Serious. It is meant to be serious. It's maybe overly serious in, in, in many ways. Uh, and that's the point they're trying to do. It's like, oh, I, I, I want some of that fun semi-campiness in, in these types of movies. But maybe I'm just the only one who feels that way. No, I've been uh, doing some other research for, uh, I guess, it, a podcast and a blog project that I'm working on uh, about photography. I stumbled across this philosopher, uh, fairly modern, contemporary, but fairly unknown, Wilhelm Flesser, who talked about the introduction of photography as a technology in our society and the effect that it has uh, on us as, you know, as people. One of the interesting things he brought up is uh, that there used to be a sense of magic and there used to be this idea of sorcery, magic, uh, sort of uh, mystery and the mystical because we didn't have such literal representations and now implied literal representations where, you know, when photography first comes out, we believe that we've captured a moment and film is the exact same thing that we can reenact this idea and this concept. But, you know, as we've seen, it's manipulatable and it's lost its context in reality. And now with everything that's happened in the evolution, we are losing our ability to just sit back and uh, be in a puzzle box or be in an enclosed environment. What I have mm-hmm. been using too much, I think in this podcast in general, like period pieces, like we can, look at this movie and this is just one moment in time, it'd be best not to over contextualize it or think about the impact it had. In Indiana Jones, same thing, you know, like all of the Arabian culture is in the same way, benign is a little judgmental, but it it just exists. It's this beautiful world. It's meant to be magical. You're not meant to understand it because it's so foreign to the American, you know, consciousness. And now it's still foreign to us, but we believe we understand it because the news and politics have told us what those, like you're bringing up, what those roles actually are. So when you see the Magi, now we automatically assume a terrorist cell or some fucking bullshit mm-hmm. like that. Um, 
Should they still make movies like this? It'd be great. Do does Hollywood make original movies anymore? I don't think so. Like uh, there's no script writing. Yeah, it's it's gotten a, it, it's so derivative. I think maybe what we're getting into is maybe they're doing this derivative shit because they believe they need to take these magical films and make them literal and make them a dark. And, and this way, I, I hate modern critics because all they want are people to wallow in misery with them. Mm-hmm. And as long as somebody, uh, you know wants to kill themselves in a film they give it a 90 fucking nine percent uh and if anyone has any fun it automatically starts at a 50 percent byline and yeah. then you got to fight to get up there uh mm-hmm. it's it, it's a weird world so we live in now you, you've been called out peter travers travers fucking Trump uh, yeah. like i will say like i think this movie is a great example of right before the dive into like not so much cynical, but like, do you guys remember the the Treasure Planet movie that Disney yeah, made? Yeah, it's a good movie. The Disney yeah. one, yeah. It's, it's not movie. a good movie, actually. <laughs> um, because every time that it's like um, something that could be magical or something that could be fun, we have to kind of turn our noses up at it and say like, oh, but like, we're not actually having fun here. Like, or like poking, it's not so much as poking fun at themselves. It's like, but we're not actually like enjoying ourselves. This stuff is for babies. We're adults here. I feel like the 1999 Mummy doesn't go that far. Like it has some comedy with it. And like, you see that with like the physical comedy, um, with like the inspirations from Buster Keaton. Uh, you see it in how the characters are and how they relate to each other with it being like sincere that Rick gets like, flustered around evie like it it has that sincerity that you lose as you get into movies in the 2000s um and in the 2010s i think i definitely agree with that and that's something that me and dave i think have battled a bit here with or grappled with which is i think in 1999 not every single film but there is a little bit of like we're being earnest in this emotion whereas nowadays oftentimes i don't ever want to paint with too broad a brush here but oftentimes it's always like an ironic sentiment that people are doing yeah and i just feel after certain times like can we just like say what we mean (laughs) instead of just everything being an ironic statement or like i like this but not actually like this i'm like okay great like enjoy the things that you enjoy love the things you love love it unabashedly i mean i'm saying this from my you know i'm in this computer but where it took me from i have a luke skywalker standee and like books bookcases of comic books and like action figures and stuff because i believe in if you love something enjoy it and that joy is something that you can bring to any kind of piece of media even in the face of high stakes little bit of like colonialism stuff going on in the mummy um i guess the final question i'm just going to throw at both of you here then what we ultimately try to answer here is do you think that this movie is still culturally relevant culturally relevant it's a loaded description i I know i think it's watchable i think people should still watch it and i think if you watch it you should watch it with your uh blinders on a little bit like sarah eloquently put it i was just reading the zen uh, buddhist book and they talked about how um i think the uh, the metaphor allegory is about life being a train track and you should spend your time uh, enjoying looking to the side and seeing all the passing scenery. But if you stare at the track and worry too much about where you think you're going, you'll just get dizzy. And then uh, this Zen master says, that track is not life or fate, it's sincerity. And I think that, uh, I mean, I was thinking of the word naive, but I think sincere is better. I think there's a sincerity, even in naivety, about a movie like this, where like you're saying, even if it comes off a little childish that, yeah, he's in love and he doe-eyes uh, Evie and, you know, c- creates these, like, dramatic moments. But it's fun because it's pure. Star Wars is the same thing. Like, each of the characters is this single emotion, right? Hope, uh, villainy, whatever it is. And, and, uh, and you know, wisdom. And, and so, like, as you go through that storyline, it's exciting. It's like... You want to see the little guys win and it's now become such a played out trope. But if you go back to Star Wars, it's still incredibly rewatchable because mm-hmm. that sincerity of filmmaking and storytelling is still there. I, I don't want to overstate The Mummy. The Mummy, in my mind, is not going to stand up in the pantheon as, let's say, a Star Wars. But it's it's so much fun. And I think mm-hmm. people need to just uh, just stop talking shit about stuff and just go and have fun. You know, make movies that are fun. We don't need to always 
do things like this podcast and worry philosophically about where <laughs> everything fits into the grand scheme of things. Um, there's a there's a great movie called Sullivan's Travels, um, and I it's probably on the Criterion Channel um, if you want to check it out, Kyle. But it's kind of about this battle with sincerity. Um, this filmmaker wants to make serious movies about these issues, and he, in order to like do his next movie, he poses as a homeless man and goes on a train and goes across the the country and in the midst he gets locked up and he kind of understands that like by the end of it he understands that the average person doesn't want a movie that's like here are these issues and we need to do something about these issues you can talk about those issues but it doesn't need to be a movie about those issues. You can have fun and have something that's to escape to. Um, and I think kind of the neat thing about that movie, Sullivan's Travels, and that you see in The Mummy is that it's like commenting on things like racism, colonialism, whatever, even like the pulp tropes that we, we've come to know. Um, it's not really commenting on them. It's using them. Um, and they're just kind of there. And whether that's good or bad, it, it just kind of is. And I mm -hmm. think that it's still worthwhile a movie to watch and enjoy. You can take off those blinders if you want and, and really dive into this movie, but I don't think you need to. Now, as far as like whether this movie is still culturally relevant, I know it's had a bit of a resurgence online with people pointing to it and being like, this was yeah. the bisexual's dream of like Evie and Rick and even Jonathan, Correct. like just like even I will say even Imhotep himself has some moments and <laughs> you just like every everywhere you look, you're like, I'm attracted to that person. I'm attracted to that person. <laughs> I liked him before he got his skin back, actually. That was... <laughs> No, when he's back no and he's surprised. about... <laughs> no one's surprised, Kyle. <laughs> his acting when he's like bringing up the sand wall is just mm. beautiful. I yeah. <laughs> love it so much. So it's having a bit of a, a cultural renaissance in that sense of like people watching it and rediscovering the, their sexuality, I guess. But yeah. I think there's also something to be said about the masculinity that Rick O'Connell has um, and that you see encapsulated with Brennan Fraser's early roles, even so much as George of the Jungle, of him being a soft boy a little bit. Right. Of, you know, being flustered around Evie, but still being like in control, you know, gunslinger, punching guys, you know, in control, but also kind of not in control. Um, I think that's a healthy version of masculinity to see um and that he's not like looked down upon for being flustered like it's just the way he is this is the uh the die hard for camp movies we've, sure we've i mean die hard itself role. is pretty campy but uh, yeah well this thing he's like the first action hero of that generation to actually bleed <laughs> and get his ass right. whipped yeah but brendan frazier does that emotionally yeah, it's great. Absolutely. We're done here. Well, the machine has asked us to wrap up here. So let's get so into bossy. some trivia here. Uh, this was the sixth highest grossing film in North America in 1999. So when we said it made a lot of money, it made a lot of money. But I guess we'll find out as we go through here, maybe, what other movies outgrossed. Um, I think The Matrix was one of them, actually. <laughs> uh, Brendan Fraser nearly died during a scene where his character is hanged. So Rachel Weiss remembers that he stopped breathing and had to be resuscitated. Oh, so shit. yes, he actually lost consciousness after being dropped. I can't believe they actually neck. hung him or he hung himself. I mean, there's, I mean, there are a lot of, well, I think there was safety actually. things in place, but something went uh, wrong. But and still he, that's, there's a lot of layers there for someone like <laughs> an actor to put yeah. themselves into that. There's, they're demons. There are demons there. <laughs> what, there's the, demons. Yeah. Scary. Uh, Dave, you, I'm sending you a couple of, uh, pieces of trivia here yourself so if you want to read those out sure uh emotep was actually the name of the architect who developed the first pyramids in ancient egypt his ability was such that he was later said to have descended from the gods his name means one who comes in peace however as far as anyone knows he was not a despised villain as portrayed in the movie but much more likely revered as the architect and physician he was oh but I'm glad his name lives on as the main villain in this movie. <laughs> it's funny that it means like comes in peace and then he like in the movie yeah. comes with destruction. Uh, oh, this is actually, I didn't, well, I don't know any of these trivias, but uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was rumored to have been offered the role of Rick O'Connell. 
It's believed DiCaprio was said to have loved the script and wanted to be in the film. However, he had already he had already agreed to star in The Beach. The Beach. This movie would not have worked with Leo. No, no I, I agree. Actually, I like Leo fine enough, but he would not have fit this role. I don't think. Like today, Leo maybe if you remade it, he's grizzled enough. I don't know if he's got comedy in him, but uh, he's grizzled enough that he might. But like nineteen ninety nine, Leo didn't he weigh like a hundred pounds? And <laughs> that time, yes, <laughs> you need yeah, some muscle was... on the man. Come on, yeah, yeah. And he was yeah. still pretty, and I don't know, it would have been. He <laughs> was still pretty. Clint Frazier is pretty. Come on. <laughs> no, I know, but he's he's also like he looks at least in the film six foot four, and uh, you know, uh, when you bring up, brought up the action, I was just thinking there's moments where he would punch guys and it would be like a superhero things were flying off 40 feet in the air is awesome well we've come to the time now to rate this film um we keep a track of all the films we're rating on our letterboxd page so you can go to letterboxd.com slash kdvstm that handle by the way kdvstm is also all of our social media meaning Twitter and Instagram. That's our two social media parts. Um, now, again, I have to always preface this, Sarah. This is not me saying this. This is the machine saying this. Uh, but your rating does not count. So, what would you rate? What would you rate the Mummy out of five? Me? Yeah. Uh, I'd probably put four point five. Four point five. Okay, very solid score. One of the greats, uh, Dave. What would you rate this movie? I think I'll go with a four. 4.5 sounds pretty good but i'm just gonna go four to just you know just be my own person just to- <laughs> <laughs> so i want to preface what i'm about to say here when i was going into this film remember how i told you the story about how i thought i hated it so i was coming in here like honestly uh sure this was gonna be like i'm gonna give this half a star like our lowest rating and it's like i'm just not gonna like it i'm gonna rate this movie a three so six times the amount that I thought I was going to give it. I want to preface that. Okay. Uh, I actually ended up really enjoying this. It's 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 solid. It's fine. It's just uh, as compared to other films, somewhat like it. I'm rating it a three. Uh, name them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Raiders Raiders of the Lost Ark is the first one that comes to to mind. But I don't know. Um, Kyle. It's a lot of bias here. I feel it's a lot of bias. Wow. However, that being said. That means that with our ratings, Dave, that it is 3.5. Entering our list at the number eight position in 1999 is The Mummy. Dope. That's great. All right, let's see what we are going to be watching next week. Oh, that's a movie I've never seen. Ghost Dog. Ooh, Ghost Dog. That's the... Uh, yeah, Forrest Ghost Whitaker? Dog's, is it Forrest Whitaker? Movie. Yeah, Forrest Whitaker. I think that's a Jim Jaramusch movie. Jaramusch, Jaramusch, Jaramusch. Jaramusch. Can you sing the Fandango? Yeah. Uh, I love that movie. Again, I, it's like everything here. I haven't watched that movie probably in twenty years, but uh, I think I used to own a copy of it. All right, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Maybe just one more time, if uh, people wanted to stay in contact with you online or see what you're up to, how can they do that? Uh, well, they can look me up on Twitter as at stegoceras so like the dinosaur but with sarah at the end and then an s but if they want to check out the horror movies i've discussed uh like the mummy horror movies they can look up scream scene uh scream scene podcast.tumblr.com and on twitter underscore scream scene just quick note stegosaurus is always my favorite dinosaur Right? It's great. Yeah. He's like fat and lumbering. Yeah. He got yeah. the plates so he didn't fuck around. Like it, you know, T-Rex yeah. not going to bite literally has back. a mace on his tail. Yeah, it's it's so actually cool. carry around a mace. Um, Dave, can you um, unwrap me? Just spin me. No, spin me, Dave. I think I like you better this way. It's a little <laughs> yeah, bit more Yeah, he's contained. Yeah. You don't it's, have to worry about where what trouble he's going to get into. That's how, and we're learning with this pandemic, that's how you deal with a vi- virus. Is that, can, can, is that a little can cruel? You, <laughs> can you feel... Can, can you feed me my applesauce then? Uh, I'm just, I'm going to step out the door here with Sarah. I'll, uh, I'll see you in a week, Kyle. Bye, Kyle.